Welcome to Curmudgeon's Corner for Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. It is 210 UTC as we're starting to record, uh, which is just after 7 p.m. Pacific for me, and it's just after 10 p.m. Eastern for my co-host, which is not Yvonne today. Uh, once again, he could not make it, and uh, so today we have Ed. Hello, Ed. Hello there. Uh, and and I will say that once again, like my plans for figuring out how to get a co-host have just not been working out. Uh, you know, I had promised that the next time this happened, Bruce would be able to co-host because he wanted to last time and I just didn't see the email. But we reached out to Bruce and he's like on a business trip and can't do it this week. So I was like, okay, well, I'll send out the email like I have been doing, but I've the last few times I've sent out the email, what I've done is I've not included the last few people to co-host because I wanted to like get some variety. But guess what? The last few people to co-host are the ones who always answer. So in this case, uh, I did send out the email, but Ed, who was excluded from the email because he was like one of the last ones to co-host, uh, I just reached out to him separately and said, Ed, if you want to do it, just let me know. And um, so Ed, Ed answered and no one else did. So here we are. Uh, it is good to hear from you again. And maybe next time I send one of these out, I'm not excluding anybody anymore. I'm just sending the email to everybody. Even if the result of that is that the only people who ever answer are Ed, Bruce, and my son, Alex. You know, what? We, it'll be what it will be. So anyway, welcome, Ed. Um, now for an agenda. Uh, we are going to just alternate topics just like myself and Yvonne always do, just like Yvonne and I always do, right? I'm getting my grammar mixed up here. Um, but Ed and I actually sort of planned it out in advance. We talked about them, and so we know what those topics are going to be. So just as a preview, in the first segment, Ed's going to talk about running, and I'm going to talk about a movie. In the second segment, and I say Ed talks about, and I'm going to talk about, it's not like we're going to hand it off. We will have a discussion. It's just, it's Ed top, Ed's topic and it's my topic that we chose. But uh, in the second segment, Ed picked uh, wealth and home ownership and some recent stuff he's been reading about that. And I am going to talk about how Biden wins again after this debt limit fight. And then finally, in our third uh, segment, uh, Ed is going to talk about Teaching Reading in Mississippi, which he has also read about recently and we'll have a little discussion on. And I couldn't leave it out. Um, I will end the show with some talk about Trump and the fact that uh, this week we found out there are recordings of Trump making what seemed to be further admissions, getting him deeper in trouble with the documents case. Uh, anyway, that's the agenda. So with that all out of the way, Ed, running, what's going on? First of all, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, as far as it, I can tell. It's been a while since we talked to you, so like, uh, no, no, no more trips to to Kilimanjaro or anything, though. Uh, no, I haven't done that. That's almost three years ago. I was just, I know, I know. It's just, it's very memorable. So I'm going to bring yeah. it up every time. Yeah, you know, but. I was, I was just looking at pictures of it again today because one of the other groups that I chat with a lot. Uh, we're having a debate about whether there's global warming or not. And I was uh, looking back at pictures of Kilimanjaro from around the 1900 range hmm. uh, and comparing them with the pictures I took. 
and it's really dramatic. I mean, there was snow when I was there, uh, but not very damn much snow, whereas it used to be just completely covered on top 20, 30% of the mountain. Right. But, uh, it's, uh, it is losing its snow. Very rapidly from what I hear, as as are most of similar places. Like glaciers are retreating all over the place. And yeah, yeah it's a, you see so much on, you know, whenever you see the charts and graphs, it's really striking. And it's, it's amazing how people are. Um, I think there's less people in denial that it's happening at all because it's becoming more and more obvious. But at the same time, there's still a reluctance to really do all that much, especially if it involves inconvenience or cost. Uh, but anyway, that, that seems, is not, that is not our topic though. Ed. We're talking about running. Yeah. We're talking about running. So tell me about running. I, I have a, a, a group that I run with every Thursday. And actually recently we've been mostly walking because a couple of us really don't run much. I only, I run about six to 10 miles a month, uh, mm. but I do 30 to 35 miles of walking a day. In, a day. A wow. day. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, a week, not a day, a week, a week. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Me- meanwhile, well, I am lucky if I walk from the bedroom to the kitchen and back in a day. Well, there's, go, there's go a ahead. lot of advantages from walking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, the, the group on Thursday night uh, uh, advised me recently that the uh, the Bucks County Roadrunners uh, running group uh, have a, uh, a a series. They have a spring series. I ran their winter series this year and actually did pretty well. But they have a spring series, and they noticed that uh, several of those individual runs in that series don't have a, uh, a, a, if you will, a permanent record holder uh, in anyone over the age of 80. Hmm. So they insisted I should do a couple of things. I hadn't signed up because we were gone a lot of it, and I missed at the five of the seven runs or five of the eight runs. Uh, so anyway, I went out last Saturday, and I not only uh, uh, set the course record, uh, but I broke the old one by almost six minutes. Uh, the nice. old guy had done it in 47-something, and I did it in 42 in a couple seconds. <laughs> Very nice. Congratulations. So you are, you're discussing with the uh, uh, the record holder for over 80-year-olds in the Doylestown uh, 5K race. <laughs> Very nice. And, and, and this, this is something, you know, I think you've mentioned before uh, when we've talked uh, that just part of your exercise regime or whatever – Running, walking, et cetera, is something you've been doing for quite a few years uh, at this point. I started running when I went back into the Army. I had a break in service, went back in at age 41. And after I had signed all the papers and was uh, at work on on duty, they said, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, every year, twice a year, you have to do the PT test that includes a two-mile run. That won't be a problem, will it? Mm. The last time I had run was in uh, college. So, so I started running and I swore I would never start again once I finally got up to where I could do two miles. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I can still do two. <laughs> Actually, I can do, I did three last weekend, so I can do even more than that. Excellent. I, I, I've been like, I, I would, I can't run. Like I had, I would have to work myself up to running more than a few seconds at a time. I, I at, the, at the moment I'm, you know, it, it's it's a battle just to make myself walk. 
Like my, my form of exercise when I've been doing it has been just like, I'll take a half hour walk, you know, at one time or another. And, but it very much goes in phases. Like I'll get into a, uh, a groove where for a while I'm doing it semi-regularly, a few times a week, whatever. Uh, and then I get out of it and it like literally goes weeks or months be- between me doing that. And we've also been, we were working before I so rudely had to go back into the office. We were walking my dog more than we had been before. I've mentioned this on the show, but my dog is slow. <laughs> <laughs> my dog likes to take its time to smell the flowers, to smell everything else it can smell. And so like when I, when I walk by myself, I try to walk at like, you know, a pace that's, yeah, I'm not running, but at least I try to walk quickly at a decent like pace that I like, I'll, I'll work up some, uh, some sweat and, you know, I'll, I'll get a little bit of exercise out of it. When I walk with my dog, I'm barely moving. So it may, I may be out an hour with the dog, but it hasn't been like a workout. Well, t- to show you how fast I run uh, a, a year or so ago, I was out with my daughter on a, on a run walk and she had sprained her ankle. So she said, I can't run tonight. I'm going to walk. And I said, well, that's okay. I'll walk with you. It was We were in a group that was going to, most of them were running. But anyway, so we started up and I said, I'm going to jog a little bit and then I'll slow down and, and you can catch up. And I realized after uh, a few hundred yards that, that I was jogging and she was walking and I was keeping up with her. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um, anything else on running that you want to share? No, that's probably enough for now. (laughs) Okay. Well, I will jump straight to my movie. Um, and first of all, I have no idea how this movie got onto my list. The only thing I can imagine is that somebody either on this show, on the Slack for the show or something else when we were talking movies, decided to throw it out there as an example of a really horrifically bad movie. And basically saying, well, you know, Sam will put it on his list and maybe he'll watch it and it'll be amusing to hear it. Uh, Because this is literally one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, It is Low Blow from 1986. Have you heard of this? Low, low? Low blow. Oh, no, can't say that I've heard of that one. So here's the thing. It is a low-budget film um, made, who, 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 let's see, it was directed by Frank Harris, produced by Leo Fong, who also wrote the story. Um, and. You know, I don't recognize any of these names. I, I I don't know. It was featured on a best of the worst list in 2015. Um, apparently, it is considered a cult film by certain people. Um, but so it, it it's extremely low budget. It the the basic plot. Uh, and I'm reading from Wikipedia here. It is about a private investigator that goes on the hunt for a girl who has been taken in by a religious cult. He recruits a team to help him in his quest to rescue the girl. Um, And basically 
the movie sort of starts with the girl being kidnapped and this guy being recruited to go find them. Um, and then has sort of a series of things as he goes around town and recruits his team. And then finally at the end, they sort of attack the compound for the cult and rescue the girl. Right. I'm sorry. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> but the, Nobody in this could act their way out of a paper bag. <laughs> it was just horrid. Like, I do not pretend that I could act in the slightest, but I still feel like I could do better than some of these people. You know, it's just like, it, it was so wooden, so unbelievable, so stupid. And the the lack of a budget was obvious in every camera shot. And the the dialogue was nonsensical. Um, oh, and I, I even forgot this. I, I found it like on a place to stream. Uh, let's see. What was the name of the place? Let me see if I can find it real quick. Da, 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 da. I'm looking it up. <laughs> okay. I found it to stream on this service called Plex. Okay. And it, it's it's the only place I could find it. It wasn't available for purchase anywhere. It, it, so I, I couldn't like buy a copy and thank goodness it wouldn't have been worth like anything. I, they, sh they should have paid me to watch the damn movie. But uh, it was available to stream for free on this service called Plex. And it's free because there were ads. And, but it wasn't like, you know how lots of places, they'll put the ads at the beginning, they'll put the ads at the end. Maybe they'll interrupt in the beginning. And, sorry, they'll, they'll interrupt in the middle. Maybe they'll interrupt in the middle. But this one, not only, in, and maybe I was using the Apple TV app version of this, I think, or maybe I had to do it. I think it was on the Apple TV. Maybe I had to do it through my phone. I forget. It's been a little while. But the point was, it would play the ad but the movie would keep playing too. Oh no. So you would have the ad would start playing, but the audio from the movie could still be heard under it. And then at the end of the ad, it would pick up, you know, as if it had kept going. So if you wanted to see the part you missed, you had to rewind it after the ad. And the ad itself was, it was like weird local ads for like a local air conditioning company and stuff near me. And, and it, but it, it didn't even play cleanly because it was on top of the other. It was just an awful experience all around. First of all, bad movie, then bad streaming service. It was just, I, I can... I will say it is not the worst movie I have ever seen. I will put that to uh, the Jackass movie. Oh, um, yeah. I never the, saw those. The Jackass movie in 2002. Um, that year I had, I was, I had challenged myself to see more movies. And so like every week, I would go to the theater by myself, not like with people or anything. I would just go to the theater by myself and see the highest. I would look at the previous week's box office ratings and I would go to the highest ranking movie that I had not already seen. And somehow in the lull of whatever time of year it was, I guess I'm looking here. It came out in October. 
Um, there, this came up like it was, I don't think it was ever the number one movie of the week, but it, it had been like several weeks in a row and I'd already seen all the big movies that were out at the time. And this was the number one thing I came into the movie theater. I was the only one in the theater. Oh dear. And this was the only movie I've ever been tempted to like leave in the middle of i i gutted it out and watched the whole stupid movie but it was awful it was just there were lots of places that were just disgusted disgusting for no reason like that that was what i had heard about the jackass movies and i never went to see any of them no and i i I wish i hadn't i stopped my little movie thing shortly after this it was just like because because again like if if you were watching a good movie and there is a bit that is disgusting but it serves the story in some way because you're you're supposed to feel disgusted and it like matters because something bad is happening and blah 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 okay fine i can perhaps deal with that i i i might not like to watch that movie over and over again but i could deal with that the jackass movie was just being disgusting for the sake of being disgusting and it was incredibly stupid they they were indeed jackasses but it was just i did not find it funny like supposedly the the the, the people like this because they think it's funny i did not find it funny in the slightest i found it repulsive and stupid and idiotic so jackass the movie will still go on my list as the worst movie that i have ever seen in my life and you guys, you do not have to suggest even worse movies, but <laughs> Low Blow is number two on that list. It was Low Blow was not disgusting. It was just stupid and bad. And sometimes, like, I get, like, you know, people mention this as a cult film, and sometimes you get these sort of cult film films that people, that they're so bad they're good. They're so bad that you laugh at how bad they are. And you 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 can watch the movie and and chuckle and giggle just making fun of the movie. I did not find it useful even for that, because it wasn't bad in a funny way. It was just bad. Yeah. Anyway. Well, if you've never seen Blair Witch Project, you I have seen Blair Witch. I have seen Blair Witch Project. I've reviewed it on this show. Ah. I, and and I've seen its sequels. Um, it's and, the only movie I ever got up and walked out, and I had to because I was I was literally busy. becoming sick. Yeah, I didn't mind. I didn't mind uh, Blair Witch actually. I, I I thought it was okay. Um, you know, is you know, it's, it's a little thin, but like, and I guess a big part of that is you know I did not get you know nauseated by the camera work or anything. Uh, but uh, I, I might have had a very different opinion if I had. But uh, I thought you know, Blair Wrench was okay. I wouldn't say it was a good movie, but I I, I think on this show, I, I think I gave it a thumb sideways. And like, it wasn't worth the hype. Like, it got a lot of hype when it first came out, whenever that was. It was a long That's time ago. That's why we went. And it was, I, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, the, the first um, Blair Witch Project, just checking the date. Uh, it was 1999 was the original Blair Witch Project. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 it fine. I don't know. I, I okay. think that, that may have been the last movie that I saw with my wife before I retired. We were still in San Antonio. And and, and watching that movie made you decide it was time. I had already decided to retire. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, uh, with all that, let's take a break. And uh, when we get back, uh, we will talk about wealth and homeownership. Back okay. after. Okay. Back after this. You're listening to this podcast. Do you like it? No. Do you want to support the show? No. Well, after you have subscribed to the show, followed us on Facebook, and told all your friends they should be listening to, what else can you do? I won't subscribe! You can help fund our Patreon at patreon.com slash curmudgeons corner. Patreon is a way you can throw us a few bucks a month to help out with the expenses of the show. You know, web hosting, equipment, a little bit of advertising to promote the show, and maybe every once in a while some much-needed sedatives for Yvonne. At different contribution levels, you can get a mention on the show, a Curmudgeon's Corner postcard, or even a Curmudgeon's Corner mug. Fun stuff! Not fun! In any case, the contributions help tell us that you enjoy and appreciate the show. I really, really hate Curmudgeon's Corner! Are we worth a buck a month? No! Five bucks a month? No! Or if you are nuts about us, maybe even more. One hundred billion! Billion dollars! Even though you don't have anywhere near a billion dollars! If we're worth anything to you at all, send it our way at patreon.com slash curmudgeonscorner. Alex hates. Really, really hates. Curmudgeon's Corner! That's really mean, isn't it? I hate Curmudgeon's Corner, but I really do! Okay, we are back, and we are going to talk about uh, wealth and home ownership. but I'll, I'll start, Ed, by you told me that this topic was inspired uh, by Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter. So for folks who don't know uh, her or that site, uh, her newsletter is called Letters from an American. Uh, you can sign up as an email newsletter, but you can also access it on the web. It's at heathercoxrichardson.substack.com. Um, and it was the June 1st, 2023 edition of that newsletter that inspired your topic. So other than that, I, I have not read her newsletter. I just like scrolled up and down through it real quick as we were talking, but uh, I have not read it. So tell me about... Uh, first, I guess what, what, what about it caught your attention and what you want to say about it? Well, the, the, the most of the article actually was, was earlier in that it was talking about economic news in general, but then about half, two thirds of the way she talks, she makes a comment says home ownership is the most important factor in creating generational wealth, wealth that passes from generation to generation and it increases each time. Mm. And, uh, this, this concept has, has been around a long time, and I think there's a lot of validity to it. Uh, for instance, some people have speculated that one of the reasons that uh, uh, black people are so much further behind in in overall wealth, this is capital value to yourself, you know, your net worth, if you will, uh, is because there are several generations behind Caucasians in the establishment of generational wealth because they didn't get started until 1866. 1865. And even even then it was difficult because the forces were very much out uh, to prevent them from owning homes, uh, buying homes, and, and uh, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and, and so it's 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 kind of a generally accepted thing. However, there have been some people raise a question of is home ownership really the way to build wealth? And uh, it, it, it's kind of an interesting concept because, uh, for instance, there's there's an article in uh, CNBC not too long ago where a guy goes through the stuff and he talks. He says, let's say you bought a home for a hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and then 10 years later, you sell it for 200000 You say, wow, I made $100,000. But he said, if you then go in and you look at uh, what your costs were, uh, you had 10 years of interest, which is 60000 bucks. You had 10 years of taxes, which were $20,000. Uh, your real estate fees were six or more. And even before maintenance, you spent $86,000 in addition to the 100000 that it cost you. So you made... 14000 if you didn't have to do any maintenance. If you had to replace a roof, of course, you're losing money then. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's a tendency of everybody to think, I need to go out, I have to own a home. And so they sink their equity in there. Frequently, the realtors talk them into getting a home that is a little bit more than they can afford because, after all, homes always go up in value and your salary is going to go up so you can afford more of a home even if you can't right now. Hmm, and, yeah. uh, back in 2008, that had some rather serious repercussions. Well, I, I think too, part of the whole idea of, you know, it being a part of building generational wealth requires it to actually be generational, right? That you don't sell it after 10 years, but you, yeah. you pay off the 30 year mortgage and you hand it down to your kids and all of this kind of stuff, which is not the reality for most people anymore. Even people who are homeowners, yeah. you know, they, the, you know, most people don't keep their homes the whole 30 years. They move on be, you know, well before the 30 years are up. And even people who do keep their homes the whole 30 years are often ending up disposing of them or selling them to finance their lives in retirement as they downsize yep. rather than passing them on to their kids. So the, the whole idea of passing that down as generational wealth sort of starts breaking down if you don't actually keep the wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so it's uh, uh, while I agree with her in principle, I, I think that maybe it's it's not the most accurate assessment of what's going on, uh, that there are there are probably better ways for for many people to uh, to look at building wealth than necessarily through home ownership, because, mm. as you say, most people are going to take 30 years to own that home. Uh, and that's a long time to wait to have accessible wealth now other and, and even and even then it's not accessible right like you well, get the money either by selling it or taking out another mortgage or whatever yeah. well and and that's what a lot of people do is they say gee i bought the home for a hundred thousand it's worth a hundred and thirty thousand now i'm going to borrow 25 and so they now have five thousand of equity not 30 and right of course they have bigger payment than ever to make yeah i mean um and and that all depends on the ups and downs of interest rates and stuff as well. Like uh, a few years back, we did a cash out uh, refinance uh, where we ended up lowering our payment and taking cash out. And we added like uh, a heat pump and did some home improvements uh, and some other stuff. But nevertheless, you know, that was because we were in a time frame where interest rates were falling and falling dramatically for a number of years. Uh, if you tried to do that now, 
where interest rates have been going up, that would be a lot harder to make work in a good way for you. But, yeah. but it certainly would not. But, uh, but, but either way, like I, th- I feel like real estate in general is definitely one way to build wealth. It's always been considered to have a certain level of security that other investments don't. Uh, like it's it's a little bit less volatile than the stock market, but that's based on a whole bunch of assumptions. And like you said, the real estate collapse of 2008 or whenever it was is just a prime example. Nothing goes up forever continuously. Yeah, it's just a, you you get lucky on timing, or you know, and you can look at the long term trends, but you know, the short term can be problematic sometimes as well. Ooh. Um, well, if, if if you're you know well, all sorts of things happen. But uh, if you suddenly need access to cash, uh, the places to get it are somewhat limited on on many occasions. Yeah. Um, so, do you have, do you have any recommendations for people trying to build their generational wealth, Ed? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was fortunate that I was in a fairly fairly high paying job as a as a military physician. Uh, but what what we did is as we moved any time that which we did a lot of if we bought a house when we sold it any profit that came let's say let's say it increased 20,000 over what or whatever uh we did not take that money we put it into the next house or we put it in some sort of savings so we did actually build some wealth and then when it came time to think about retirement i was 58 uh we realized that if we were going to live on my pension my military pension uh, that we were going to have to have not any debt. So we, the next thing we did is we uh, uh, used that money that we had been saving some other stuff, and we ended up with no mortgage and no car payments, mm. which suddenly makes living a whole lot easier, and we easily live on the combination of my pension and the uh, Social Security. So uh, debt is a very bad thing, and whatever the debt's for, it's a bad thing. Uh, so <laughs> my recommendation would be to always consider not building much debt. Hmm. There's, there's a guy who's a lot of his advice is kind of, kind of, I don't remember his name once, he, but he talks about debt. And when people call him and say, but I have to have a car, he says, then if you, if you have to have a car and you don't have enough to pay for it cash, then what you do is you get a car that you can pay off in 12 months. You know, so you take a 12 month loan, pay it off. And at the end of that 12 months, you can make a decision. You can say, the car's still driving. I'll keep on doing it. And I'll put that money I've been putting into that into a savings account and save it until I can get a really nice car. Or you sell it and get another one that you can pay off in 12 months that maybe is a little better because you had the, the trade-in. But the point is, is he said, you never have more than a 12-month debt. Uh, so the, the worst you're going to be is 12 months until you're out of that debt payment. That's pretty good advice. I, I think the person you're talking about is probably Dave Ramsey. That's the one. Yep. Yeah. So he he's known for that advice, and uh, you know, some people swear by it. Other people have criticized him in terms of saying that it, it really there is a certain position of privilege that you have to be in to live the way that he says. Uh, but you know, it's it's all arguable. But hey, uh, certainly was a long, long time ago, but my first car cost 200 bucks. 
and, and I drove it. Interestingly enough, we, we paid, uh, we, we, I was transferred to San Francisco and I had to have a car because I was commuting 14 miles in, uh, and my wife needed a car to raise the two kids that we had. So uh, it, I had $200 after we had paid all the expenses and all that stuff. So I went to this used car lot and I said, I need a $200 car. When he quit laughing, he said, well, we take cars like that down the block here to such and such a lot. And he says, they'll give you a good deal. And so I went down there and they had a, uh, I think it was a, a 1951 Ford Falcon, as I recall. And it was $200, but the tires were bald. And he said, I can get those recapped for you for 32 bucks. So I said, okay. So for $232, I had a car that I drove for a year with no car payments. Uh, and then it blew a piston on the way up to the Golden Gate Bridge uh, after about 13, 14 months. So I pulled over to the side, called my wife. She drove me on into the hospital. And the next day we rented a uh, uh, a tow bar and went and towed the thing to the junkyard and got a uh, another car that was a nicer car that again we were able to pay cash because we didn't have that much income but we had enough that we were able to 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 save up and have uh, I think the next one cost five hundred. So I, I I'll tell you while you were talking about that car I went to look to see like what I might be able to get for two hundred dollars and I'll tell you <laughs> even those little ride on cars for for small children, most of them are well over $200. Oh, yeah. I, wa- I was able to find a couple that were less. I think the, the cheapest one I was able to find scrolling up and down was 160 bucks for one of those little toy cars that you can ride on with a you know battery powered blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So basically for $200, you can get an extremely low end rideable toy car. Right. My my bicycle costs, almost, I think around two hundred that I that I ride, uh, but you know that was nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, so it was a few years ago. In um, uh, you know, I obviously uh, you know our our income at that point was much much less. I don't remember exactly, but it was on the order of uh, of maybe thirteen thousand a year. Mm, right. So yeah, yeah. There is this thing called inflation. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but I, so. As I said, I mean, if, if you have a job, you can, you can get a car that you can afford 12 months of payments on, or maybe you don't need a car. <laughs> I don't know. But I, you know, I think I, Ramsey has a lot of other things that I find. I, I don't listen to him anymore because it was pretty much always the same advice. Uh, yeah. Plus some of his advice on religion and stuff didn't, didn't excite me much. Uh but uh, I think debt is is the enemy of people who don't have a lot of money. Yeah, and I'll I, you know I, I make a decent amount, but I've gotten myself in trouble with debt more than once, and it sucks. And you know it, it is it is definitely hard to like make those decisions and actually like live within the amount you're actually bringing in when they make it so easy to like. Well, you know, I've got this credit and I re- I really wouldn't want this thing and blah 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 and boom there yeah there you go. Uh you know and uh it it is really easy and uh you know yeah, absolutely. You you're you're right. Um but you know, most most people at this point uh uh a non-zero credit card balance, and in fact, a credit card balance that is too much to be healthy, is very, very common. Yeah. 
Well, that's it. Yeah, I, I didn't even mention that, but yeah, you're right. They, uh, there's just no place for credit card debt. If, if right. You, you were talking about like the quote unquote good date, good debt, like a house, like yeah. a mortgage, um, yeah. and uh, a car payment a little bit less so, but definitely like, you know, the credit cards are, yeah, yeah. they're bad. Yeah. And I say they're bad having, you know, considerable balances on all my cards right now and knowing that that's bad and it sucks. We, we, we never any, it's been a lot. I don't remember the last time we had a balance due on the credit card after the due date. Right. We, we had one for about three days a while back. My wife has set it up to do automatic payment from our checking account to the uh, credit card account. Yep. Uh, and somehow they screwed it up and didn't take it out for three days. <laughs> right. So, so she had a, a very unpleasant dis- discussion with them and they swore yeah. that would never happen again. <laughs> okay. Anything more to talk about about wealth and home ownership and everything associated? That probably covers it. Okay. Then in that case, I will jump on to my topic for this segment, which is Biden wins again. Uh, so we're talking about debt limit. You know, last week, Yvonne and I mentioned that it looked like everything was going to come together. All of the People were moving in the right direction. Nobody serious was threatening it. And in fact, that is what happened. Uh, you know, Biden and uh, McCarthy came to a deal. And then the deal went through the House with, you know, most Republicans and a bunch of Democrats. Uh, and there were people on the extreme right, extreme right and the extreme left that voted no. But they all knew that it would go through. And in fact, like, you know, even on, there's a good case to be made that most, if not all of the people who voted no, if there was in fact a situation where it would fail if they didn't, probably would have voted yes, certainly on the Democratic side. But I suspect even on the Republican side, there would have been fewer no votes. If, the, if my really Senator, Senator Fetterman, the, the fellow who had the stroke a while back, yep, yep. voted no. Okay. And uh, he specifically said, well, if I had thought it was in trouble, I would have voted yes uh, but I didn't like that they were cutting into the SNAP benefits, so I voted no. And right. frankly, I, I like Fetterman for the most part, but I think that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, say more, because I think that's a lot of the no votes on the Democratic side uh, were basically along the lines that you said, that they wanted to register their objection to certain parts of the deal, but... If push comes to shove, if their vote had been needed for it to pass, they would have voted for it. I think that's right. So why do why do you think that's bullshit? It's sort of a safe well, no vote, especially in that case, because uh, uh, at least one of the analyses I've read has pointed out that uh, yes, the stamp benefits are cut back and the work benefit, and they and they pointed out that. I don't. They gave a number, but the number is like in the, in the hundreds to maybe a thousand people might lose their SNAP benefits, and those are going to be mostly people in their fifties who maybe ought to be working anyway, at least. So uh, <laughs> that's the case. But that that it will not. They they didn't think there was a remote possibility that would cut into children's food uh, or uh, independent, you know, sole sole mothers, uh, sole parent type things with kids. So I, I think it was maybe it was needed to be said, but uh, I'm I'm not sure that it was 
a very realistic sort of thing. Partly he did it because the the, the snap falls under the chair, the committee that he chairs. So right. I, I can sort of see why he did it, but I, I was disappointed. I there there comes times when you need to stand up and say, "Yep, this is good." Yeah, and I, I look. I think first of all, a lot of the quote unquote concessions were very similar to what you were talking about. Like, yes, there was a concession, but when you really look at it, it was really small. And in many cases, it was also backdated so that, you know, it's actually out a few years. So there's a chance to change it before it gets there. Um, or in the case of the work benefit, there were some estimates. I think the CBO estimate, the Congressional Budget Office, actually said that while some people might lose their benefit, if you looked at the changes at a, as a whole, there would probably actually be more benefits given out under this than before, just to different people. It was just reshuffling it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and like lots of this, you know, there were a lot of things in here that basically let McCarthy say that he got a few things that were important to him, but we're not really big. We're not really impactful. Whereas really Biden got most of what he wanted. Um, and, oh, you know, and, we built, and, and they promised to build a, uh, another pipeline. Yes. The one in West Virginia, uh, which was put in there sp specifically for mansion. Yep. You know, um, yeah. So they got his vote. Um, and, and so what it seems like here, you know, there, there were, all of all of the threats about holding the economy hostage and we're going to wreck the economy if we don't get what we want, et cetera, et cetera, just all fell apart. And they this is how it has always worked before. You know, this is it, this is the same game we've played. I think we worried a little bit because there seemed to be more crazies on the GOP side this time than before. And McCarthy seemed like he was in somewhat of a precarious position. But bottom line, like several weeks out from this, McCarthy signaled that, you know, he would come to a deal. He wasn't actually going to, as people have been saying, he wasn't going to shoot the hostage. You know, he, he was, he was committing, he went to Wall Street and gave a little speech or whatever about how, don't worry, you know, everything will be fine. <laughs> we'll come to a deal. And then once he had done that, sort of the threat was gone. Um, and and so Biden could work diligently. And th th this is another part of it. Like, you know, the, the, the crazy Republicans and maybe a few of the crazy Democrats were out there yelling and screaming and whatever. Meanwhile, Biden is, and his team were just working, yep. you know, just quietly working the deal. Now there's this statement that, well, he started out saying he would never, ever negotiate at all. And we lost all this time when he was doing that. First of all, there, there are a couple of things with that. One, it was an opening gambit. Um, and I don't think anybody seriously thought that if push came to shove, Biden would not talk if things were about to go over the cliff. Um, second. Well, yeah, he came back from the trip, the, the Asian trip uh, two weeks early. Yeah. But, but the second bit is the place where that changed is when the Republicans actually managed to pass something in the House. I think the early part of the strategy was based on the idea that, hey, these Republicans 
given their one vote margin and the things that people were saying, I guess it was a four or five vote margin, whatever, uh, given the, the narrow margin they have and the things that people are saying, they're not going to be able to pass anything. So we're going to let the pressure build and eventually they're going to just have to give and pass a clean limit because they'll have no choice because otherwise they will blow up the economy, et cetera. Uh, but they managed to pass something. And once they managed to pass something, I think that that point, Biden didn't really have any choice but to come to the negotiating table and start having those conversations. And that's exactly what happened. But, you know, it was, I, I, you know, Biden's style, you know, is a quiet style. You know, he's he's not jumping on TV and yelling at people and talking about how the other side is bad and blah, blah, blah. He's just quietly working to try to get things done. And so he worked with McCarthy and got something done. And, you know, on his speech uh, to the nation today, um, after the deal was all done and everything, he he once again was on the like, you know, this is how it's supposed to work. I didn't get everything I wanted. They didn't get everything that they wanted. And we we came to an agreement that, you know, solved the immediate problem and we move on, you know. And th- this calls back to, like, this is the whole spiel that Biden gave when he was running for president in the first place. You know, I'm, I'm didn't, I didn't hear the speech, uh, but I'm going to make a wild guess and say that he didn't once say, and I did all this. No, not not in that way. No, I mean he he sort of he sort of had a sandwich uh, structure where the beginning and the end he talked all about bipartisanship and how everything you know uh, complemented uh, McCarthy and the Republicans he worked with on you know we disagree but we work together well and respectfully and blah blah blah. He sort of did that at the beginning and the end, and in the middle he did talk about like how this was, you know, holding things hostage and it shouldn't have happened this way and how, you know, that, and he did list some of his accomplishments in terms of uh, how it was important that they protected uh, the, the infrastructure bill and the, the climate stuff that was passed last year and things like that. Um, so, but this is, this is the thing, um, you know, it all aligns with what he was, what he campaigned on and what, uh, like a lot of people, I mean, myself included, were sort of poo-pooing the the whole like the world has changed. You can't be bipartisan like this. The they are not going to work with you. You're never going to be able to get anything done. You have to like, you know, give up on the idea that they're going to be good partners and just push through whatever you can unilaterally. Don't you think and, part of that's because the the news all circulates around the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lorena. I, I, I well, I, th- I think that's part of it. I think there is actual like, yeah, that's how the Republicans have been behaving in a lot of cases. Um, but it, it does forget that there are all kinds of uncontroversial things that were getting done in bipartisan ways anyway. Yep. And I think what like people like myself underestimated was Biden himself. Like he actually has, you know, whatever 50 years of history in the Senate or whatever it was of doing these kinds of deals. 
And, you know, those of us who are like, you know, well, it's not going to work today. Well, you know, maybe he couldn't get everything, but he has the skill set to be able to go in there and figure out what he can get through and be clever about doing it and get it done. And so, and, and sometimes it seems like, you know, even like the Republicans, you know, are, are like after the fact or like, wait, what just happened? (laughs) You know, like even, even though you ended up with a bipartisan deal that some of them voted for, um, it, it it's he is good at this you know and i i think that's the bottom line is that you know he, he's people have been underestimating him over and over and over again and i i include myself in that i mean i expected him to be you know a somewhat blah caretaker president because he was uh you know pushing the the normalcy idea like his main campaign focus was You've had four years of crazy. Let's just calm down and be normal again. And and he's delivering that, but also in the process, he's managed to actually get some get some shit yeah. done. And you he know, waste energy attacking and and yelling and screaming at the crazy ones. There, there's still fifteen or twenty of them in there. But you know, there are fifteen or twenty crazy Republicans. But that leaves a, 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 about a hundred who are be- decent people. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. Like, uh, well, in in the in the in the Senate, uh, you may have a few decent people, but they still like they're they're not in control. And the House has been almost completely taken over by the crazies. Yeah, but uh, that's because that that small group. Uh, yes, somehow yes, dominated. There, there are the there are the craziest of the crazy who are like the fifteen yeah. or twenty. And you at, know, at some but, point, the the rest of them, the 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 sane guys, and are going to say, you know we need to work together with the other party and get things done. Yeah. Now, Those 20 I, or 25 cannot continue dominating the, the conversation. I don't have your level of optimism on that. I feel like they, they are going to continue to be more of the Republican caucus over time, not less. Well, well I, the, and, the next election is going to tell us that the, you know, the elections, uh, uh, yeah, because it, it we'll see who our people send into office. If they send back all the crazies and some more to go with them, then then we're in real trouble. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, what we got had in this situation is you did get a whole bunch of Republican votes, but it took it, it, it took a couple things. One it was on something that was not it wasn't like this core culture war stuff because the the republican party has been moving more and more towards that being their core issue that they care about as opposed to the economic stuff yeah um and so this was sort of meat and potatoes financial policy and budget stuff and most of the crazies don't really care about that that's not the stuff they care about. Yeah. They care about like the the anti-gay laws and the anti-trans laws and and you know maybe abortion and some of these things. They they don't care as much about how much the government is spending and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, you know, uh I mentioned this on last week's show, I believe. 
like the Republicans in general don't really care about that because the proof is when they're in power, they increase spending. They, you know, they don't reduce the deficit. All of the stuff they complain about, they do plenty of when they're in charge. It's not like they live this. So they don't really care about the the budgetary issues and stuff. It's just another place to posture and do stuff. And so this is someplace where, you know, McCarthy can make his deal because the other half of it is, so first is they don't really care about this stuff or most of them don't. Like the whole fiscally, fiscally responsible, small government, blah, blah, blah. All that is bullshit. They don't really care. And number two is there really was a threat of like, if you don't do this, some really awful things are going to happen and it's not actually going to help you out. I know there was the theory going around that, hey, completely tanking the re- the economy might help the Republicans. And so we should do it anyway. But there was only a very small group who thought that and were going to go off the cliff because of that. Um, and so McCarthy was able to come in and make the deal. And most of the crazies w- are able to sort of say, yeah, okay, fine. We, that, that's whatever, do that. We're going to keep doing our thing because they don't really care about policy stuff and certainly not wonky policy stuff like budget stuff. They want to yell and scream about divisive issues and get their faces on TV more, yep. you know? And that so, they do. And that's all we hear about is that. And that they do. And meanwhile, slow and quiet and, you know, Biden goes and gets things done. And is is what Biden is able to get done anything like the expansive ideas that liberals and progressives might want to do if they had full control of everything? No, of course not. But that's not what, how our system works. You know, so there's the the concession to reality and how good a job does he do getting things done under the circumstances he is given. So in the the first two years, it was okay. You had uh, you had the the House and the Senate, but the Senate was fifty fifty, and two of those were Mansion and Cinema. So mm-hmm. you know, and you've got the filibuster. So there was a limitation of what could be done under those circumstances, but he still got a crap load done anyway. And now we've got a democratic Senate with, you know, another vote to spare or two, but you've got a Republican house. So what can you do under those circumstances? Not all that much. So it's basically at this point, a holding action. So there were a lot of people complaining, well, he didn't get this and he didn't get that. And it's like, what do you expect? Like when you've got, if you really wanted to, to continue any sort of democratic agenda, you needed to retain the house in the last election and you did a lot better than expected, but you still ended up in the minority. So of course the best you're going to have is sort of that holding action. Yep. Um, so anyway, Uh, so Biden wins again. Um, how much credit he'll get for it, I think is an entirely different issue in terms of politics and what happens in 2024 and all of this kind of stuff, because, uh, the Democrats don't necessarily do as good a job as they could in terms of actually just claiming and getting credit for the things they accomplish. Uh, but you know, uh, you, you, you got to start by getting the wins, I guess. And so he got another win. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's take another break 
And then we will be back and we're going to do teaching, reading in Mississippi and the Trump tapes back after this. Do, do, do. This podcast is sponsored by AlexMzilla.com. Alex Mzilla is great. It's on YouTube and it has lots of fun videos. Alex Emsela is awesome and great. I love his videos, and they are obviously better than Curmudgeon's Corner. Well, they're funnier. They're more interesting. And frankly, he seems at least a little smarter than either of the hosts of Curmudgeon's Corner. Honestly, it's ridiculous how endlessly talented and phenomenal Alex Emsela is. That's how great his YouTube channel is. A-L-E-X-M-X-E-L-A dot com. Yes. Do, do, do. Okay, we are back. And like I did last segment, uh, Ed's topic comes off of an article. So let me give the reference to the article. Uh, It's Mississippi is offering lessons for America on education by Nicholas Kristoff, is in the New York Times, uh, published May 31st, 2023. So once again, Yvonne, you're not Yvonne, you're Ad. Once again, Ad, I have not read this article at all. I brought it up when you mentioned it, uh, and I'm scrolling through, looking at some of the pictures, but I have not read it. So tell me about this article and what it inspired you to want to talk about. Well, a couple of things struck me. Uh, number one, the uh, the dramatic. It seems dramatic when you read the article, and he talks about the huge change that Mississippi has gone from one of the top, uh, from the bottom, two or three school uh, uh, states in uh, reading in their kids uh, to the somewhere in the top five or six, I think, in the nation. Oh they wow, that, that's a significant. Change. It's it's huge. But then if you if you go through and look back on a few other articles, this started a number of years ago, uh, and and they just it's it so, hasn't been so, a sudden abrupt change. It's been a gradual change. Uh, but it's involved a lot of things. It involved a uh, apparently some fairly wealthy guy retired to Mississippi, which has had been his home. And he said, this is terrible that our kids can't read and uh, invested a bunch of money into the uh, state uh, to, to help with literacy programs. Uh, a woman came as the state superintendent of education who was dedicated to uh, uh, renovating how we teach reading uh, and pushed this through uh, with some resistance. But uh, interestingly, the, the, the union uh, president of the, the two teachers union got behind her and said, yes, this is what we teachers want to have happen. And it happened. And uh, the kids' scores almost immediately started going up, uh, but they've continued. And to show is there, there are a few of the high schools in some of the really very poor areas of the state now have a 97% graduation rate. So so a couple of things real quick. First of all, uh, the article has a little graph on it uh, on the high school graduation rate. Um, and they didn't, they didn't go from the very bottom to the very top, but they went from significantly below average to now above average 
Um, so I, I, you know, maybe there's another metric where they did what you said, but it's significant improvement, but not necessarily quite as dramatic as you said, um, at least on this metric. But se- second, I wanted to know, like you, you mentioned they came in with an idea of how to teach reading that was different and there was some resistance. That's, yeah, but, that's the other but, thing. The, the but article what was, talks like, wait, wait, what, what was the idea? What did they do different? Well, that's what I was going to say. The article talks like it's something new. They're teaching phonics. Now they're doing other things, but they're teaching phonics. Right. My mother taught fifth grade when when I went into fifth when I went into fourth grade. I guess it was she uh, decided she didn't have to be a homebound mother anymore. My sister was going into first grade, and so she got her teaching certificate uh, and started teaching. And I remember her talking. Dad was a, a high school teacher, the dean of men in the high school. Mom was teaching fifth grade in a very poor area of the city. And there was this huge debate. They t- kept talking about phonics. And she would say phonics this and phonics that. And she believed in phonics and, and other people didn't. Uh, it's an old thing. It's it basically instead of teaching kids to uh, to look at a picture and say, oh, that's a tractor. Tractor, that word is uh, T-R-A-C-T-O-R. Instead, phonics teaches by looking at the word and sounding it out. You right. learn uh, the 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 sound of the various uh, combinations of letters. Not unlike uh, it, when we were in, uh, uh, um, oh, crud, we're, uh, Romania uh, a few weeks ago on, on our trip to Europe. Uh, the first instructor, the first tour guide we had uh, was a Brit who's been living in Romania for about 20 years. And he explained the Cyrillic language to us. And he, he says that the Cyrillic alphabet is entirely a phonic sounding. Each one of the letters has its own sound. So if you know the Cyrillic uh, 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 alphabet and hear a Cyrillic word, you can spell the word. And if you see the word spelled out, you can pronounce it. Right. Um, and that's basically what they're doing with these kids as they're teaching them how to sound out the words. And then they qu- very quickly learn, learn what the words are. And it's been dramatic. It's more fun for the kids. Uh, and they're, 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 you know, they're, they're learning to read and it's exciting. And it's, it's, it's not a drudgery. Uh, you know, there's been this, this business of, uh, well, actually, let me not go there. The other thing they've done is they've gotten parents very much involved. That's uh, generally very when you important. invite parents to come into the classroom, you may have one or two come in. The parents have gotten very involved. Uh, they have funded pre-K uh, education that starts reading, uh, and and it starts not reading, but starts alphabet and starts the phonics. What does A sound like in a word? What does A B sound like, and so on. Uh, and then the next thing they do is at the end of third grade, uh, kids have to take a reading test, and that test determines whether they go to fourth grade or not. And there was a lot of concern about that. They said, "Oh, this is going to be—it's it, going to uh, disadvantage the very poor kids and the, the children of uh, of color uh, because they they don't read as well." Or what, on and on and on. Well, it turns out that they they've been now doing this. Uh, the kids really prepare for this test, uh, and they get set, and and they do pretty well. But about, I don't remember, the, it seems like it was 13 to 15% get held back another year and don't go forward another year. And you say, oh, they're going to be depressed. Turns out that that 13%, those kids that get held back, uh, excel the next year, 
And by sixth or seventh grade, as a group, they are performing at or above the level of the kids who advanced the other year. They've caught up with them. They're not, right. they're still a year behind. Ra- rather than pushing people along and they just get further and further behind. You get them where they can succeed. Yeah. And make it fun. Uh, and then the final thing that they have done is that at least in some, a lot of, this is so much individual thing, but there was a, a girl in one of the high schools who was a, a bright kid doing real well. Her family were just absolutely dirt poor. And so she dropped out of school because she had to go to work to make enough money for the family to eat. And the school went to the home and said, look, this is this is just not right for her. It's not fair to her long-term or anything else. Uh, and they set up a program where she could study at home. They would send her homework and stuff. And she graduated with her class uh, with, the, I think it was a, a, a B-plus average. I, I can't swear to that, but it's a good, great average. Uh, because the school got involved and said, we need to make this kid get through. And the parents said, well, if it's that important to you, it's important to us too. So it's a combination of a lot of things that I would never have expected to occur in Mississippi from what mm. we've heard of it. Yeah. New York City apparently is going through a battle now. The uh, The mayor has said this is going to occur. He's, the mayor is basically the superintendent of schools now in, uh, since several years ago. And uh, he said this is going to happen in our school. And the superintendent has said yes. And they're working on it. But some of the teachers are fighting it. I think the teachers union there is behind it too. So it's probably going to go through, but it's uh, it's not going as easily as the news might lead us to think happened in Mississippi. But that thing started years ago in Mississippi. It's It must be that it's been going on 15, 20 years is all I can think. Right. I mean, the, the graph they include in the, um, in the story starts at 2011. Yeah. Uh, but th- there's more. And like you, you mentioned the test, uh, the, the w- one of the tests, they moved from near the bottom to to the middle for most. And this is where you got your thing. I was, I've been looking for it. As I said, here's the paragraph. In the National Assessment of Educational Progress, a series of nationwide tests better known as NAEP, Mississippi has moved from near the bottom to the middle for most of the exams and near the top when adjusted for demographics. Uh-huh. Among, um, among just children in poverty, Mississippi fourth graders are now tied for best performers in the nation in NAEP reading tests and rank second in math. That must be what what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. So basically they're looking at um, when you look at the demographics that, and economic positions that were doing the worst, they've seen the biggest improvement essentially. Yeah. The, the, the other thing that struck me is that, their math scores, by the way, are going up too, from what I saw. Mm. Uh, this was sort of, you know, not, I don't know that they had statistics, but the impression was that the kids are doing, which makes sense. If you can read, you can do math. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, you know something else? Yeah. One of the, one of the folks who pushed it, it may have been that superintendent, is dyslexic. Mm. Interestingly. <laughs> but uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of an exciting thing. The, the, well, one, of, one, one, of, one of the other things I noted just skimming the article while you were talking is that they did this with relatively little money. I, oh, I mean, sure. yeah. you know, because, you know, a lot of folks try to solve problems like this by just throwing money at it. 
Um, and money, don't get me wrong, money can help if it's used properly, but it's not just about money. It's about making sure you're putting the right level of attention and you're doing the right things and you're taking it seriously and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and you, you know, so it's not just money. It also mentions that they were very careful about things like they considered increasing class sizes and they figured out that yes, increasing class sizes would help, but for the same amount of money, they could improve training for the teachers and have an even bigger effect. Yeah, so, you mean decreasing sizes, classes? Yeah, sorry, decrease class sizes. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, don't, I, don't, don't increase them. But and, they, and they studied those sorts of. I mean, they did some experiments on uh, uh, would would we do better if we spent a whole bunch of money doing such and such, and then they analyzed it and they found that they, they got their best stuff from courses teaching the teachers how to do it. And uh, volunteer and low-paid uh, uh, tutors, they do a lot of tutoring for kids who are struggling uh, and these sorts of things. And they said, leave the class size the same. Right. And, and, and you know, uh, seems like a good idea. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if they had the money, they could do all these other things and reduce the class sizes and it would be even better. But they did sort of the careful analysis of like, where's the best use of the limited money we have? You know, so anyway, the last thing I would say on it is that, uh, you know, reading is is so essential. And and I see so many young people as I go around talking and meeting with them who don't like to read. They, they, mm. you know, and, and this includes some of my grandchildren say, I, I just don't like to read. I, I, I like to watch it on such and such or do this. And it, it just, uh, somehow in those early years, and maybe this program is doing that, you've got to excite kids of sitting down and reading a book because it's fun to read a book. Mm. And if you, if you do something that makes it not fun to read, then I don't care how much money you spend on it and how much everything else you do. They're not going to read. They'll get through the class and they'll do that and they'll pass the test. And then they'll say, I don't need to touch another damn book. It's summer vacation. My summer vacations, I went home and read. (laughs) I I read a lot during the summers as well. And, And I will say also though, it doesn't have to be exclusively books either. Like reading books is good. I'm not disparaging reading books in any other way, but building the habit on anything else too. Like, Reading, re, re, reading newspapers, yeah. reading, uh, you know, being able to go on the internet and find information in written form, not just a YouTube video uh, about a topic that you're interested in, knowing where to go to like, you know, find various things. So it's not just read the book. There are yeah. all kinds of other things to read too. And for some kids, the length itself is challenging and, you know, if you can't get them to read, you know, Moby Dick or War and Peace, oh, well, reading a comic book is fine, too. You know, you just, you just pick two books that I've never been able to get past the first hundred pages. I, I've, I've never even read a single word of either of those. But, <laughs> uh, but they're, they're, they're well known as super log books that are yep. also kind of hard to get through. I, but, did, I did read Les Miserables. Uh, from beginning I, to end, I I read excerpts of that. I think I was supposed to read uh, a, a an abbreviated version of it in high school, and I didn't even re- read the abridged version. Yeah. I I 
read little bits and pieces here and just enough to know what I had to know on the test or whatever. Uh, my my <laughs> current reading regimen is that uh, we, we get lots of books from Kindle. And uh, I read a uh, one or two, sometimes three novels in a row, and then I'll read something with some teeth to it. I'm, currently, I'm reading the uh, 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 book by uh, uh, a history history of the United States. is called These Truths. Uh, Jill, I can't remember her last name, whatever it is, but I, I, I read something with some some teeth to it. Uh, uh, some of them are real struggles. Uh, but I, I alternate it from a novel, usually good novels, not crap novels, but fairly good novels. But uh, anyway, Les Miserables fell under one of the meaty ones, uh, and it took me a, a while to get through it, but by God, I made it. It's a wonderful <laughs> book. There, there's sections that I had to stop reading to cry. Okay. Okay, so anything else on education? I think that's enough. But just congratulations to Mississippi. Yeah. Okay, uh, and so I'm going to finish it up by talking about Donald Trump. And you know, when we were when we were planning before we started, um, Ed was like, ah, "There's always Trump, but that gets so boring over time." Uh, and and I agree. So let's. I'll try not to spend like an hour on it. Um, but uh, basically, what we're seeing continues to be Trump basically getting in deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, now we'll, we'll see like what triggers, you know, uh, uh, people specifically on the documents case, uh, what came up this week was that in 2021. So well after he was president, uh, Donald Trump had a meeting with the ghost writers for Mark Meadows book that he was writing on the, on his time in the, in the Trump white house or whatever. And they were discussing a scenario where there had been press reports that in the final weeks of the Trump presidency, uh, you guys may remember there was a little bit of action with Iran, like where the, the U S and Iran, uh, there was, um, uh, that the Iranians had like attacked a boat or something, or no, there was an attack in Iraq. I forget the details, but the Iranians had killed somebody in Iraq, I believe. And the administration was deciding how to respond. Um, yeah, I, again, I forget the details. Apologies if I got it wrong. Bottom line, the Iranians did something and the administration was deciding how to respond. And Trump, apparently wanted to just all out attack Iran, you know, oh my God. and, and wanted, and th there were reports of this at the time where like, you know, Trump was itching. He's like, and, and well, at least some of it was saying that like Trump was feeling like maybe if we were in the middle of a war in January, they wouldn't be able to hand over to Biden. Right. Uh, you know, uh, but regardless, the reporting was, that General Milley basically talked Trump down from this. So there were reports in the press in January 2021 that Trump wanted to do crazy shit that would escalate with Iran, and General Milley talked him down, and they ended up doing you know, a limited attack, and things did not escalate. 
I mean, we did, we did retaliate for whatever had happened, but it did, we did not go overboard and do it in such a way that, um, that everything went crazy. And part of this was apparently Millie telling Trump that uh, we just weren't set up to do that. We couldn't do it that quickly, blah, blah, blah. There was, you know, logistical issues, et cetera. Now, and this made Trump very mad these reports about how Millie talked him down. And so the, the ghost writers uh, were talking to him about this scenario and apparently because they were gathering notes to write a book, they were recording this interview with Donald Trump. And when they got to talk about this subject, Trump was like, look, what Millie is saying is a lie. And I know it's a lie because of this document and he like rattles some paper around. Uh, and he's like, look, these are, these are war plans on how we would go about attacking I- Iran and Millie was involved in these and blah, blah, blah. And I wish I could show you, but I can't show you cause these are classified and I'm no longer president. So I can't declassify them. <laughs> so, this implies a few different things that like make things more problematic than they were for Donald Trump already. Um, one, Donald Trump has been claiming that somehow he magically declassified everything he took automatically just by thinking about it when he left, when he took the documents from the white house while he was still president. So there's no paper trail. There's no nothing, but essentially he was promoting the theory that, because I took it, it was obviously declassified because it would have to be for me to take it. But this conversation indicates he knew that wasn't true. And that's been one of the sort of magical mental declassification was one of the things that his team has been saying over and over and over again for months, uh, or if not years at this point. Um, second, um, it shows that he knew that he was still bound by restrictions after he was no longer president in terms of what he could or could not do then. Uh, and, 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 and third, it potentially shows that he was showing a classified document to uncleared people. Now on that last bit, maybe not. A number of people have pointed out that it's an audio tape. We don't know what he was like. He could he could be rustling a random piece of paper that he had on his desk and referring to the classified document, not actually, you know, when he says, I wish I could show you this, that whatever he had in his hand wasn't necessarily the actual real classified document. Donald Trump has been known over and over again for like, you know, while he was president, staging events with like huge piles of paper that turned out to be nothing but blank paper. Yep. You know, wh- whereas he's saying it's like, look at all these documents we've produced and it's just a pile of pile of blank paper. So who knows what he was actually holding there. Now, they've also interviewed the the ghostwriters who were in the room with them. So we'll know more. And they've uh, they've talked to Mark Meadows himself. So he may know more. Uh, the other thing the lawyers pointed out is apparently right after the special counsel got a hold of this audio tape. They then sent a new subpoena to Donald Trump and his lawyers asking for any documents related to General Milley and Iran, uh, specifically 
they're looking for this potential classified document on plans for attack, attacking Iran. Um, and Trump's team looked and could not find it. So there, there are a couple of possibilities there. One is that the special counsel already has that document and they were just looking for other stuff. Uh, another is that uh, even after all of this, Trump still has it somewhere. Or maybe has disposed of it some, or maybe has disposed of it somewhere else. Um, in any case, this. I'm not ho- sure I understand. Thank you, Siri. Um, in any, in any case, this whole incident uh, is basically another example, and there have been a bunch already of Trump basically admitting to the crimes in public. Yep. Like he 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 keeps talking about how well I did everything right. It wasn't a crime. I you know uh, presidential records act this that whatever, but he's disputing a, that he thinks what he did was fine and legal. He has not been disputing that he did those things, and so the fact that he's wrong about the legality. It means that he's essentially just out there admitting crimes. Uh, now I've heard, I've heard people say that um, it, it may be a lot longer on the January 6th case. There are all kinds of stuff still going on there and new people being talked to and new subpoenas and blah, blah, blah. But that it looks like the special counsel is quote unquote near the end on the documents case. Um. And I've heard some people saying that they think we're talking days, not weeks. Um, we'll see. The Georgia case is heating up more too. The Georgia case is heating up too. We have uh, uh, we have a date range. Basically, she's said that whatever they're going to do, they're going to do between the middle of July and the middle of September. So you know, and and they. There were just reports today of them expanding the investigation to include some things that happened outside of Georgia. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But uh, I don't know if it really will be days, not weeks. Uh, we've heard things like that before. Uh, the timing is going to be the timing. You know, they're um, like the people who are saying that don't have inside information or anything. They're just trying to make a judgment based on sort of who's being talked to and what's already public and all of this kind of stuff. Um, I've also heard that a significant consideration is probably just going to be the overall timing. Like we're running out of time to have any of this stuff finish before the election, you know? Um, And so it's possible at this point that, you know, if a federal case dropped, you know, next week, that if you had a whole bunch of things going just right, you could have, you could have a trial early next year, or maybe even late this year, but probably next year. But, you know, what we're going to have the, um, we're going to have that New York trial uh, in March, right in the middle of the Republican trima- primaries, uh, if if we have federal cases sort of starting to sprinkle out trials, you know, 
and and Trump is really, really good at delay and making things take longer and blah blah blah. And you know what 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 happens if like there there are indictments, but the trial doesn't happen until after the twenty twenty four election, you know? And, and especially if Trump wins, I mean, on the federal cases, he could just, you know, pardon himself at that point, I guess, if he won. But um, I don't know. Like, like I've said repeatedly over and over again, the next um, the next year and a half are just going to be nuts. And uh, more stuff keeps piling up, up about Trump and he keeps doing himself no favors by just talking and continuing to say things that are essentially providing evidence against himself. We can only hope that the the 20 to 30% of the nation that would vote for him if he were on death row uh, <laughs> will be overwhelmed by the 70% who are somewhat sane. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, like I keep saying, I'm not, at this point, I've sort of lost my hope that sort of these legal proceedings will change very many people's minds at all. And mo- even the Republicans who wish their nominee was somebody other than Trump seem like if push comes to shove, they would still pick him over a Democrat. So we'll see. And, and you know, all of these Republican candidates who are basically hoping Trump implodes because like their only shot is if, if Trump, self-destructs or is so embroiled in legal stuff that it finally starts affecting his polls. Uh, so, you know, we shall see, or maybe he'll do like, uh, we had reports this week as well of, uh, Tara Reed, who's the woman who accused, uh, Biden of sexual harassment, um, or sexual assault, I should say. Uh, she skipped off to Moscow. Yeah. So, you know, maybe Donald will do that at some point, but you know, I don't know. I, 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 more recently, I felt it's more likely that he skips off to Saudi Arabia or somewhere than Moscow, but yeah, who knows? Uh, but he's certainly sticking around for the moment and, uh, we'll see what happens. But like, given, given his history, like if it looks like he's going down, I wouldn't put it beyond him to skip the country. Yep. You know, so he may not want to go to Moscow because it seems to be coming under increasingly frequent attack. <laughs> well, also it's cold. It, it, it is chilly. <laughs> I don't know how the golf courses are in Moscow. Probably not too good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we'll see. I, I, you know, the, the, the problem with all this stuff is like our, our system is so slow. And there was so much delay in even getting started and taking this seriously. I mean, like Mueller left a roadmap to charge this guy for obstruction of justice and that could have been started, you know, on January 21st uh, after Biden took office. Uh, maybe not quite because they didn't have an attorney general in place yet, blah, blah, blah. But theoretically, it could have started right away. Um and no, like instead, the statute of limitations has expired on almost all of that stuff at this point. Um, and we had to wait for Biden to do Biden. We had to wait for Trump to do more stuff, you know. So all of this document stuff is about his behavior after he left the presidency. Um, the January 6th stuff includes actions he did it while he was president. We have yet to see what will 
well, we have yet to see what will come out of any of this. And, um, of course, the New York stuff is before he was even president. Uh, the Georgia stuff is at the very end of his presidency. And, but, you know, it's, 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 it's so frustrating how long these things take. And I've read lots of people explaining why it takes how long and how, like, we're being impatient and you want them to do due diligence and we want them to do that. And even when they're being silent, there was probably stuff going on behind the scenes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it certainly seems to me that the DOJ didn't kick into gear until after the Congress finished with their January 6th stuff uh, and basically presented them with all kinds of really obvious evidence that like, look, something serious was going on there. And all of these, it feels very much like, you know, the Garland wanted to leave this stuff in the past and concentrate on the future, but Trump won't let him. So we'll see. Anyway. He's, he's not going to go away as long as he can still be upright. Yeah, no, he's he's not. So we'll we'll see. Um, okay, so that's that's all I got. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess it's time to sh- end the show, Ed. Okay. Okay, so in that case, uh, the usual stuff at the end. Uh, go to curmudgeons-corner.com. And you will find our archives going back to 2007. You will find all the ways to contact. Well, you'll find the ways to contact me and Yvonne. Uh, the you know, Facebook, email, Mastodon. Um, and if you want to get in touch with Ed, um, just contact us in any of those ways. And I will pass it along to Ed. And I'm sure he would appreciate uh, hearing anything from any of our listeners here. Um, and uh, also on there is a link to our Patreon where you can give us money. We like money. It helps with the expenses of the show. Uh, you know, right, you know, we're, we're not getting rich off that right right now. Our Patreon gets us about 15 bucks a month, which is actually less than we spend on the show each week. Uh, so if you want to help us out with that balance a little bit more, uh, please feel free, jump into Patreon, give us some cash uh, at various levels. We'll send you a postcard. We will send you a mug. We will, what else? We'll mention you on the show. We'll ring a bell, all that kind of stuff. And very importantly, at $2 a month or more, or if you just contact us and ask nicely, we will invite you to the Curmudgeon's Corner Slack, where myself, Yvonne, often Ed, and very other various other folks are just... Uh, chatting throughout the week, sharing news stories, sharing whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And the more the merrier, it would be nice to have you. Uh, so with that out of the way, Ed, since this is something Yvonne usually does, is there something that was on the curmudgeon's corner slack recently that we have not talked about on the show that you would like to highlight? There's there's several things been going on, but uh, I thought one of the more interesting ones was several of us chipped in and talked about uh, an Air Force uh, colonel who gave a speech, I guess, in London somewhere about uh, artificial intelligence-driven drones, and yep. uh, they gave it a target, and they uh, this was a practice thing, and uh, it went up, and then they canceled the target, and the drone apparently thought it needed to get points or needed to do something, so it returned and killed the operator. Well, then the next day, the guy uh, retracted and said, no, no, this was all simulation. It was a simulation that the guy it came back and uh, destroyed the uh, the operator. I, 
bottom line is so so more more than that actually the the first report like if if you read the detailed article it actually was fairly clear that it was a simulation to begin with it was it, it was reported that it was a simulation where the the drone the drone was granted point the the simulated drone drone the simulated drone would get points for doing whatever kill mission it was supposed to do but it they had a human in the loop who at the very last minute was supposed to say yes or no and the supposedly the report was the drone had figured out in this simulation that the person saying yes or no was an obstacle to it completing its mission so it went and killed them and then the original story said that they uh, they told it, okay, killing the operator is bad. So it then evolved further and instead of killing the operator, destroyed the communication system so it couldn't hear the message to say no. However, the article, if you read the full article, was in fact clear that this was a simulation, but the headline did not mention that at all and just talked about like it killed the operator. And so it went viral because it said the drone killed the operator when in fact, if you read the article, it was a simulation. But the thing that came up a couple days later was there wasn't even a simulation. In fact, the person telling this story was telling a story about how a simulation might work out. They never actually ran any such simulation. None of this ever happened at all. <laughs> so it, it, it's an interesting story like because there 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 have been all kinds of issues of like especially when you're using reinforcement learning um those ai systems can can come up with uh novel ways to get around to to achieve the goal that's not in the way that the operators had intended and and, and most of these though are like the, the, like I found an article with a bunch of examples, um, and I guess I should give the, the reference to that too. So give me one second. So there's a um, there's a website. Let's see. Da, da, da. There's a website called AIWeirdness.com, um, and they they've got you know, if you just go there, they've got recent articles on various things. But in particular, they had an article uh, way back in 2018, April 13th, 2018, when algorithms surprise us. And you can Google that and you'll find it. It has a bunch of, uh, bunch of fun examples, but they're mostly like toy examples. They're like the kind of simulations that were talked about in this article where, um, you know, they're, they're like uh, an AI simulation trying to figure out how to walk or figuring out how to jump or uh, things like that. And, and there are all kinds of really fun examples where, you know, uh, let me read you one or two. Um, uh, they had a simulation of robots that were trying to do something that, uh, um, but in one simulation, robots learned that small rounding errors in the math that calculated forces meant that they got a tiny bit of extra energy with motion. So they learned to twitch rapidly, generating lots of free energy that they could harness. Uh, the programmer noticed the problem when the robots started swimming extraordinarily fast. 
Uh, and they've, they've got all kinds of examples like this, but this sort of the scenario that was painted by this guy in terms of, you know, the drone killing its operator so it could still proceed, you know, there are all kinds of these kinds of examples that sort of point you in that direction. There's also been all kinds of science fiction movies and books and things that lead you in that direction. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, the guy was, the guy was attempting to give sort of a, a generalized cautionary tale about what would happen if you're not careful, but it was picked up as this happened and spread that way. So I, I, I think this guy has learned a lesson about being careful how you speak about things and how the the press will, even if you are relatively careful, will arrange their headlines to get clicks and things can get way out of control. Anyway, like you said, it was fun. Anything else? Any other thoughts on that one? No, that's uh, that's about it. It, it. Colonels, by the time you make colonel, you ought to be able to think more clearly of, ahead of me speaking. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. <laughs> Well, I think we are done then, Ed. Okay. Thank you for joining us and uh, filling in at the last minute. Uh, Ed had uh, only about 24 hours notice uh, of doing this show, so uh, we appreciate that. Uh, And hopefully Yvonne will be back uh, as normal next week. Uh, In the meantime, uh, again, thank you, Ed. Have a great week. Have a great whatever comes next for you and everybody out there listening as well. Have fun, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. All right. Good night. Hold on. (laughs) 